so we're surviving Storm Kira. Huh? I didn't even know Storm Kira was coming until my seven-year-old came in yesterday and told me that uh, Storm Kira was here. And uh, I decided to do a bit of research because that's what ministers do. We look up how storms got their names. And uh, we've only been naming storms in the UK and Ireland for about five years, apparently. Um, But they've been doing it in America since the... 50s, the early 50s. And uh, in America, uh, for the first 25 years, it was only female names. They didn't use male names for storms. Actually, what, the, what happened apparently was that the weather experts and the meteorologists would name them after their wives or girlfriends. Now, I'm not sure what that says about your wife or your girlfriend, uh, particularly if it's a particularly bad hurricane. I'm not sure what that says about them. Um, but that's where they started. And then, uh, so that started in 1954. Then 1979, 25 years later, they started introducing men's names to it. And, uh, and, uh, and so it goes in alphabetical order and male, female. And, and, uh, and they do it for a number of reasons. They do it so that it can distinguish one storm from another. So that if a number of storms are happening at the same time, that it distinguishes one from another. But the main reason they do it is that they feel it personifies the storm. It gives the storm a, a, a personality almost. Like we, t- we talk about, so those of you here of Hurricane Hugo and, and some of those storms in the past. And we remember them by their name rather than by the year. But here's what they discovered just a few years ago. Uh, scientists and researchers in Princeton, University in 2015, I think it was, did some research and they found out that, that if, if the storm had a feminine name, more people were killed. <laughs> Just a messenger. It's science. It's, you can't argue with science. Um, if the storm had a female name, a feminine name, sorry, it, it, more people were killed because they didn't take it as seriously. Now, I'm not saying, I'm just saying what, where if it had a male name, uh, people took it more seriously. And, and so we, we've just had Kira, okay? Kira is sort of a, a nice name. Um, what was the last one? Brandon, okay. So we've had Brandon, Kira, which means we are on D. The next one is going to be called Dennis, if there's a, uh, seriously. Then after that, we're going to have Ellen. They've already, they've, they're all planned out for the rest of the year. Ellen, uh, Francis, Gerda, Hugh. Aris, uh, John, you know what the next one is after John? Now, how frightening is this? Kitty. <laughs> Kitty. Storm Kitty's approaching. Let's batten down the hatches, folks. I mean, I think there's going to be devastation when Kitty arrives. And then the last one, after the next one after that is Liam. But they're saying that naming storms personifies them. And as we look back over our lives, you know, we don't remember sometimes the, the dates when we went through personal storms, but we remember the names. We remember the debt storm. We remember the, the divorce storm. We remember the, the, the cheating storm. We remember the sickness storm. We, we give them names. We may not, may not remember that was 2005, but we remember the storms we went through because we, we gave them a name. They had a, pers- they had a personality almost at the time. And as, as storms, they, they change as we go through life. Let's be honest. You know, when you're, when you're 14... Uh, like, when you fancy a girl and she doesn't fancy you back, that's a storm, you know? Like, that's the end of the world when you're 14. Like, I, I still remember Primary 7, Millington, Christmas Disco. They were playing the final countdown. Da, 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 da. Girl across the room. I'm not going to mention her because the last time I did, somebody actually in the room was her daughter. Um, <laughs> it's a true story. 
Eden Derry CEA, I discovered her daughter was sitting in the room. I didn't know that. Um, but I mentioned her. And uh, I still remember this girl, this, this blonde-haired girl across the room. I was so sure she was coming to dance with me. And then she went with Tim Mullen beside me. And he's ginger. <laughs> like, and I, you know what? I was, I was going into Asda last week and she was coming out. Like, I still, that was my first thought. What was that? I was 11. I'm 44 now. 33 years later. And I still saw that girl coming out of Asda last Sunday. And I thought, you're the girl who didn't dance with me in P7. <laughs> now my therapist says I'm working through it, but I don't know if I am. You know, storms change. Failing exams when you're 16 feels like the worst thing ever. Not getting a job maybe that you want. You know, or um, not getting into the course in university that you want feels like the worst. And then as you get older, you, you, you know, are crashing your parents' car or two months after you've passed your test, which I did, and they're here today still. And um, you know, uh, but as you get older, those storms, those, those things that you used to think were storms, aren't as big as storms. Let's just say. But your storms do change, like the loss of a loved one, a, a bereavement, a, a, a divorce. A, a, a diagnosis from the doctor; those become the storms, and those becomes the become the things that that can that, that take on a personality and shape us and, and 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 affect us. So the storms that you face change. You will go through storms; that's inevitable. It's just the storms that you go through do change. Storms are part of life. We don't look for storms. We don't chase storms. They just show up. And actually, this isn't the first storm the disciples have been through. This is the second one that we read about in a few chapters. Remember the first one was the one they're on the boat and Jesus is sleeping and they're waking him up. Uh, this is a different storm. And my point is simply this. Sometimes storms come together. Now, we don't know the time lapse between them. In Mark's gospel, one's in Mark 4 and one's in Mark 6. So it seems like they're pretty close together. We don't know. But sometimes... Storms seem to come one after the other, don't they? Sometimes you go through a period of relative calm and then you suddenly get battered and it's one bereavement and then somebody else in your family dies and then somebody, and, or, or you get one bill and then another bill comes in or, or, or just one relationship breaks up and, and something else happens and something else happens in your job and it just feels like you're being battered by storm after storm after storm. Storms happen. We don't always get to prepare for them. In fact, very rarely, but we can be equipped to uh, face them. Let's look at verses 22 to 23 in Matthew 14. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Here's the context in Matthew 14. At the start of Matthew 14, Jesus hears that his cousin, his crazy cousin John the Baptist, has been killed. He's been beheaded, executed by Herod for righteousness sake because he stood up to, to Herod. Uh, and that affected Jesus. Like, I think sometimes we have this notion of Jesus was just not affected by anything. Like, like this has been probably one of his best friends his entire life. When Jesus was in Mary's womb, John 
was in Elizabeth's womb. And John leapt in the womb at the same time as Jesus was in Mary's womb. That's, that's the relationship for 30-something, 30 31 years at this stage. They have known each other. They've grown up together. They've been friends. They've played together. They have, they've worked together. John the Baptist was the one who was the forerunner, the one who pointed to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist prepared the way. And suddenly Jesus has heard that John has been killed. And it affects him. And he needs space to process it. And so he goes across the lake in, John, or in Matthew 14 to get to the other side, to get away from people. But when he gets there, there's a crowd there. They've already heard he's coming. And that's where we have the feeding of the 5,000. He's deluged by this crowd. And he has compassion on them. But he still needs space. And so he says to the disciples, he says, I'm going to dismiss these guys. I'm going to send them away. It's late in the afternoon. It's early evening. I'm going to send these guys away. Why don't you go to the other side? I think he's trying to maybe also play a bit of a trick, in a sense, because they'd already gone to the other side in the boat and everybody had saw the boat and followed them. He probably thinks, send the disciples away and I can sneak off on my own because if they go back in the boat when I get to the other side again, there's going to be people there. He needs space. He needs time. And it says he went up on a mountainside to pray. And my point is simply this, and it's such a simple point. Jesus needed to pray. We see this regularly through the Gospels. Jesus withdrew from the crowds to spend extended time with the Father in prayer. And if Jesus needed to do it, how much more we? His ministry was fueled by intimacy. He couldn't do what God had called him to do without getting away from the crowd and spending time alone with the Father. You know, when I was a teenager, we called it a quiet time. I, I love how some I love I love that we can pray anywhere. You can pray when you're driving, you can pray when you're walking, running, whatever. But there is something about having a time and a place where you go and close the door and get on your face and pray. And I am so thankful for a girl called Linda McCartney, whose dad is a Church of Ireland minister, who when I became a Christian at fourteen, she got me Daily Bible reading notes every day with Jesus for new Christians. And that got me into a habit during my teenage years. Every day I would go into my bedroom for 30 minutes. I would read the Bible notes, read my Bible and pray. And that got me into a habit. And I would not be doing this today if that habit had not been formed in my life through my teenage years. So can I encourage you, you may not have half an hour. I know different times and different seasons of life have different pressures. If you have three kids running about, that is going to be difficult. I understand that. But can I encourage you to have a time and a place where you pray? Should it be five minutes? Should it be 10 minutes? Just Should it mean getting up a few minutes earlier before everyone else? Please find a time and a place. There is nothing more crucial for your spiritual life than spending time alone with God if Jesus had to do it so do we and so Jesus goes and he's trying to make some sense of it all of some sense of his loss and he retreats to hear the father's voice and to be in the father's presence and look at verses 23 and 24 later that night he was alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. It's later that night, the disciples are out on the lake. And Mark's gospel tells us they're in the middle of the lake. The lake is eight miles across. They're three, four, five miles. They're somewhere in the middle of the lake. The middle's a hard place to be. 
You're in the middle when you, you can't go back because it's too hard to go back, but you can't go forward. The middle is a difficult place. The middle is the place where you want to give up. If you've ever been on a diet, maybe that's your New Year's resolution, you want to lose 20 pounds. The first five pounds is fun. The last five pounds is fun. The middle 10 pounds, you want to eat everything you see. I wrote a book last year, not the, not the, the Tensional Transition, I wrote another one in 100 days. For some insane reason, I decided I was going to write a chapter a day for 100 days, like a devotional thing. By day 27, I, wanted, I had lost the will to live. Like, like I really, but, but in the middle, but once I got to day 80, I could see the end. The middle is the bit we want to give up. The middle is the tough bit. When you're a newlywed, it's class. See, when you've been married 15, 20 years, it's still great. It's just different. You're in the middle. You're in the middle. I'm middle-aged now. It's fine, but it's, it's different than being 22. It's different than being 15. And it's probably going to be different than being 65. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle of the... Uh, it's, you're, you're, the middle is where you're, 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 you can't go back, but you're not sure what's ahead. And so you've just got to make slow progress. You've got to keep going forward. And, and the disciples are in the middle, but you know what? Slow progress is still progress. Slow progress is still progress. You see, they've been in the boat, and we'll see in a minute, they've been in the boat for about six, seven, eight hours, and they've gone three, four, five miles. That's slow. You can walk three miles in an hour at a steady pace, okay? They've gone three, four, five miles in six, seven, eight hours on a boat. That is slow progress, but you know what? Slow progress is still progress. And some of you are trying to overcome things. Some of you are trying to move forward in your life. Some of you are trying to overcome addictions and habits, and you're making very slow progress, and it feels like the wind is against you. And can I say to you, keep going, because slow progress is still progress. It says they're being uh, buffeted by the wind. That word buffeted uh, by the wind and and the waves, it literally means tormented. There's a few things I I want us to see here. The first thing is this, why are they in a storm? They're in a storm because they're obeying Jesus. They're doing what Jesus, Jesus commanded them to go to the other side. That's how strong the word was. Go to the other side. Jesus commanded them, and yet following Jesus' command, they ended up in a storm. Now, I can understand Jonah ending up in a storm. You remember Jonah? Jonah disobeys God. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no. He ends up in a storm. They throw him overboard. I can understand that when you disobey God, I can understand you going into a storm. But what happens when you do everything right? What happens when you've said yes but you still end up in the storm. What happens when you've tried to be the best wife you can be, but you still end up in a storm? What happens when you're the most hardworking employee you can be, but you still get fired? What happens when you're the most faithful Christian you can be, but things still go wrong? What happens when you're the, 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 the best husband you can be, but you find out your wife has been cheating on you? What, what, I can understand if you do bad. You see, I was kind of always taught this notion that, that if you do good things and if you obey God, everything works out okay. Like I was taught things like this. There's no safer place in life than in the center of God's will. And in one sense, that's true. It's better than being out of the center of God's will. But in another sense, Jesus never, ever promised us that being in his will would keep us from storms. <laughs> ever. 
ever. There's this notion in Christianity today, this Christianity light we've got, that if you follow Jesus, everything, you're going to be wealthy and everything's going to be great. And you, Can I say to you, if you follow Jesus, you'll end up in a storm. And if you don't follow Jesus, you'll end up in a storm. Just one of them, you'll have Jesus with you and one of them, you won't. <laughs> storms just happen. You don't go looking for them, you just have to live. And storms happen. And they're doing the right thing, but they've ended up somewhere they don't want to be. And simply, obedience to Jesus has led them into a storm. And he didn't even warn them. He didn't even tell them in advance. But here's the thing. The presence of a storm doesn't mean the absence of God. You see, sometimes when I end up in a storm, I think God must be absent. I think God must have abandoned me. I think... And here's the other thing. The presence of a storm doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Because sometimes I end up in a storm and I start getting all introspective and confessing every sin I've committed and some I haven't even committed just in case. Thinking that, that I have done something wrong to end up in a storm. Sometimes you can do everything right but still end up in a storm. And here's the thing. Where's Jesus? Jesus isn't with them this time. Jesus is up on a mountainside praying. But if you've ever been to Israel, and if my wife and son were here, they'd be rolling their eyes. Because I always am talking about Israel. You know I'm going back this year, yeah? Um, but if you're ever there, you can see the lake, and you can see the mountain. And the entire time they were in the boat, they couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus could see them. They were trying to push this way and the wind was against them because I always thought that if you were doing God's will, the wind would be for you. But the wind was against them. Just because the wind's against you doesn't mean you're not doing God's will. But they couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus could always see them. He could always see where they were, even when they couldn't see him. Look at verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Shortly before dawn, another gospel again tells us it was the fourth watch of the night. It was probably four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. Here's the thing. When did they go into the boat? Six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock the night before, at the latest. They have been in this storm for about eight or nine hours. And Jesus has done nothing. They have been straining against the wind and the waves for eight or nine hours and Jesus has done nothing. And I'm sure they thought that Jesus had abandoned them. And isn't that the, isn't that the great question that we have as Christians? And has not been the cry of the saints through the centuries, how long, O oh Lord, how long? I find myself just going sometimes, God, have you forgotten about me? God, I've been wrestling with this. God, I've been trying to do this. God, I want this to be better and nothing seems to be happening. God, where are you? I know theologically you're here. I know from scripture you're here, but I just can't feel your presence. 
I'm trying to pray, but they're bouncing off the roof. I, I, I know and I trust because your word says that you're present, but nothing is changing. I'm still in the same place. My marriage isn't getting better. My finances are still a mess. My job is still awful. My relationships are falling apart. And God has been this way for months. And I've been praying and I've been doing everything and nothing is changing. How long, oh Lord, how long? And it doesn't tell us. I would love to give you the answer to that. It doesn't tell us. There's no easy answers as to why we have to wait sometimes. But here's, here's the reality of life. That to get to some places, you're going to have to go through some places. That there's some places we want to get to, but to get to them, there's some stuff we've got to go through. I, I, I was going to say, I like traveling. I don't like traveling. I like being in the sun. Okay? I like lying by a pool. I like being on a beach. I don't like traveling. I don't like getting to the airport and seeing 300 people in a check-in queue. I don't like getting to the place where you put your suitcase on the scales, knowing you're five kilos over, and you're trying to pull the suitcase slightly off it, thinking that'll let... Does that, anybody, anybody else do that, or is that just me? You think if you hang it over the edge a bit, like it'll take a few kilos off it. And once I've got through that nightmare, you know the bit I hate most? Security. Not only is the queue taken forever and somebody forgot to take their boots off and they've got like 14 different plastic trays because they've got so much stuff and they've got three kids. Like, like it's just like, there's always something metal they find on you. Like you're like, like, you're like where is that metal thing? Like it always goes off and they're all, you know, and then you've got the wand examining you in places no man should ever go near. And you're like, you're like, there's no metal on me anywhere. Now I have to say, the, we were in Portugal last summer and, and coming back, they kept hooking through my man, man bag. It's a man bag. It's a man bag. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm fine. It's cool. Like there's nothing there. Nothing to see here. And they kept going and going and going. And then they pulled out this big knife. Now, I'm not talking about like a, a butter knife. I'm talking about a, like a hunting knife. Like, and it was mine. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not, like, I mean, it's legal. It's legal, folks. It's legal. Now, if we could have guns here, I would buy one, okay? Get them out of the way. We can't have guns, so I've got a knife, okay? No, here's what it's really for before you leave, okay? Like, my little boy has a little pen knife, which I have control of, and he isn't using it, okay? It's not like he walks around P3 with a knife. Like, it's a little blue pen knife. And he loves going out with me to a forest park or something, and we sharpen sticks, yeah? Just, he loves sharpening sticks. And so he's got a little knife, I've got a big knife with a big blade, okay? It was in my man bag, I'd forgotten to take it out. But here's the weird thing. It got through Belfast to Portugal. <laughs> that was the bit that got me. Like, if anything, I thought they would have been more lax. They found the knife. I'm walking around Portugal for two weeks with this knife in my bag and don't even know it. But I don't like traveling. I don't like airports. They lose your luggage. Your flight's delayed. Or the worst bit is that you get on the flight and you're sitting there and then they tell you it's delayed. You ever had that? You could have told me five minutes ago when I was back in there. At least I could have, you know, just went to the shop. I'm on the plane and I'm sitting here now for two hours. 
I don't like traveling, but I like getting to the destination. There's some stuff you've got to get, go through to get to where you want to go to. There's no way around it. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through it. And there's some things you want in life that you can't. There's no way around it. You've got to go through it. There's some things that God wants to do in your life that you can't go over it, around it, under it. You've got to go through it. There are some things that will only be forged and formed in you as you go through it. There are some things that God can only do in your life because a sunshine will give you a suntan, but a storm will shape you. And sometimes we need the storms to shape us. Can I say God has shaped me more in the storms that I have been through so far in life than he ever has on the sunny days? I was at a minister's conference this week with a bunch of leaders and I was sitting with one having dinner and we were just talking about our ministry over the last 10 years and his story was many ways similar to mine. And we said this, that stuff marks you. That stuff marks you. It shapes you. It leaves scars. You hope it doesn't leave wounds, but it does leave some scars on you. And that stuff shapes you. But you know what? We both said we wouldn't change a thing. We wouldn't change a thing. We said we felt like we had grown 15 years and five years at one stage. We, we, it gave us more empathy for certain people with certain conditions because we had faced the same conditions. There's some things that the sunshine won't do that the storms will do. And God knows where you need to be, but he also knows who you need to be when you get there. And the only way he can get you that way is to get you through a storm. The storms shape us. The storms mold us. The storms give us experience. You see, this is a storm, the second storm they've been through. They don't cry out yet. In the first storm, they cried out in the storm. This one, we don't see them crying out yet until Jesus arrives in the water, which we'll get to in a minute, spoiler alert. But, but they don't cry out yet. Why? Because they've already been through a storm. There's something about experience that enables you to face the next storm differently. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There's some things that only storms can teach you. And when you face the next storm, you face it differently than you face the last one. Like things I used to stress and panic about and stay awake at night five years ago, I don't stay awake anymore. I sleep soundly. Why? Because I've been through that storm. Some of the things I used to jump into and try and fix immediately, I just step back and go... Let's just give it a week or two and see what happens. Why? Because I've been through that storm before. You know, that, it used to be an ad on TV. It was like for the YTP scheme or something. It said, you can't get a job without experience and you can't get experience without a job. Remember that, some of you old people? Um, <laughs> I told them myself that. But it's true. There's some things that you can't get without experience. There's some things that just, that you can read books And you can watch others, but there's some things you've just got to go through. And there's some things in life that God just needs to bring you through. Look at verse 26 with me. We're nearly there. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. You see, they didn't panic because of the storm. But now that Jesus shows up, it completely freaks them out. This figure approaches on the lake. Remember, it's windy. The waves are battering them. They've been here for six, eight hours. And Luke and 
I don't know if he was wearing white robes. I mean, in the Bible, he's always wearing white robes. I don't know if he was carrying a little lamb on the way. I don't know. But, 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 but this figure starts approaching them on the lake, and it completely freaks them out. You see, they have heard Jesus teach. They've been following him. They've seen the miracles. They've seen blind eyes open. They've seen deaf ears open. They've seen lepers cleanse. They've seen paralytics getting up. They've seen all these things, but they've never seen him walk on water. And they never will again. And my point is this. When you're in the storm, you will experience God in some ways that you can only experience him in the storm. There's ways you will experience God in the storm that you will never experience him on the land or in the sunshine or when there's no wind. And those of you who have been through real stuff, like real stuff, like real heartache, like real brokenness, like real betrayal, you will know that you will experience God in those deep valleys more than you will ever experience him on the mountaintop. There's, there's, there's the God of Christian conferences, and then there's the God who meets you in the valley. And it's the same God, but he meets you in a different way. And when you've experienced God in those places, in those dark places, in those deep places, you wouldn't trade it for anything, even though you would never choose to have been there. There's, there's an experience of God that you have in this storm that you will never have on the mountaintop. And Jesus comes to them in a way that they've never experienced him before. And when your heart is broken by grief, you will experience God. When you're lying on a hospital bed for three months, stared at the ceiling, you will experience God. When your world has fallen apart, you will experience God. But it will be in a new way. And at first, you might not recognize him. Because when you're in the middle of a storm, it's hard to see clearly. When you're in the middle of a storm, it's hard to get perspective. When you're in the middle of a storm, all you can see is fear. I mean, they were just with him. It wasn't like they hadn't seen him in two years. They were just with him hours before this. It's the same guy. But in the storm, they don't recognize him. And fear causes us not to see God. And storms cause us to doubt God's presence. And it makes everything worse than it otherwise is. And it causes everything to seem bigger and more overwhelming than it should be. This is one coming to rescue them. This is one coming to help them. But they think it's one coming to harm them. God isn't showing up as they're used to it. Jesus looks different to them. And they don't get it. And, and, and sometimes, I don't know, when you've been a Christian for a while, you kind of, you kind of, you, you know how God shows up, don't you? Like you kind of know this is God and you kind of have him placed into this box and you kind of, you kind of know what's God. And I think God sometimes just wants to come along and blow that box apart. And he wants you to experience him in a new way. I pray for revival. I, my longing is for revival on this island, on this land, north and south. I long to see God move. I study revival. I love, I pray for, I've been praying for revival for 30 years for God to move. I've done the March for Jesus. I've done all this stuff through the I pray for revival. I've, honestly, I, I've, I've done it. But when God shows up, I think it's going to look different than any revival there's been before. I think 
I think it might look very different. And I think it might start somewhere that we don't expect. Like imagine if God moves in Ireland, but he starts with the Presbyterians or the Baptists. Imagine if he starts with the traditional churches. Even worse, let me, let me ruffle a few feathers. Imagine if God moves in Ireland and he starts in the Roman Catholic Church. Huh? Bring it on, amen. But for some of us, we'll go, that's not God. Because if he was going to start moving, he'd start in hope. Because we're the chosen ones. What if God moves somewhere else? What if it's on the west coast of Ireland and those little country, these little country churches? What if that's where God starts moving? Will we still believe it's him? Will we get on board? I hope so. So many people have missed a move of God throughout the years because it hasn't been the way they thought it would. One of my favorite preachers in the world is R.T. Kendall. Wonderful preacher. Used to be the minister of Westminster Chapel in London, this really prestigious church. It took over after Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most famous preachers of all time. And in the 90s, in the early to mid-90s, this move of God started. And, and, and he started hearing about different things happening in, in other churches and Martin Lloyd-Jones said it can't be God. And he heard about things happening in Holy Trinity Brompton, the Anglican church in London, and in Toronto and, and different places. And Artie Kendall got up one Sunday morning and from the pulpit he said, there's stuff happening in these other churches. I want to tell you, congregation, don't go near it. It is not God. They're deceived. A few days later, a friend invites him to a meeting. He spends three hours on his face on the ground. Gets up the next Sunday and says, last Sunday I told you it wasn't God. It's God. Let's get on board. And his life, and he's now in his 90s, his ministry has been completely shaped by that move of God. He would not be the preacher he is today if he had stayed aside because it didn't look like he thought it should look like. And I pray that God shows up in this church and we, I, I often say we don't do weird, and we don't. You know we don't do weird. But whatever way God wants to come, let him come. Whatever way. I don't, we're not going to do fleshly stuff. We're not going to force it. We're not going to hype. I, we do not hype. But God, whatever way you want to come, you can come. And we will get on board. But please help us to realize that it's you. God, come and move in this land. Come and move in this church and help us not to let it pass us by because we have placed you in a box and you cannot be put in a box. Look at verse 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage, why? It is I. Don't be afraid. Notice that he doesn't immediately calm the storm. The presence of Jesus doesn't mean the storm disappears. You see, I said earlier that being in a storm doesn't mean the absence of God, but the presence of God doesn't mean the absence of a storm. Even when God shows up, you can still be in the storm. But he brings his presence and he speaks his peace to the disciples in the middle of the storm. You see, you can still be getting battered by the storm, but know that God is with you. Why did Jesus walk on water? That's the question I ask here. Have you ever asked yourself that? Why did he do that? I mean, the last storm he spoke to the wind and waves, peace be still. Could he not have done that from the shore? Peace be still. And then walked around and met them at the other side? He could have done that. Why did Jesus walk on water? 
Have you ever tried it? It doesn't work. I tried getting on my son's hoverboard yesterday and nearly broke my neck. Literally, like, I literally, there was nearly going to have to be one of you preaching this morning. I literally nearly broke my neck. Like, like, it's not easy to balance, okay? Why did Jesus walk on water? Was he showing off? I don't think so. Why was Jesus walking on water? Jesus walked on water, I believe, to demonstrate that he is Lord over everything. Jesus walked on water to show that the storms that are over our heads are under his feet. Jesus walked on water to show us that the things that overwhelm us are beneath him. Jesus walked on water to show that the things that we fear the most he has already overcome. Every storm, every trial, every sickness, every adversity, every adversary, every obstacle, every opposition, every demon, and every disease, Jesus has walked on top of it, and he has overcome. It's under his feet. He's Lord of all, and everything is in submission to him. That is why he walked on water. Everything is under his feet. There is nothing that you will face that is not under his feet. It might feel like it's overwhelming you. It's under his feet. When he rose from the dead, everything is in submission to him. He's at the right hand of the Father, and there is nothing you will face that he is not Lord over. He created the wind and the waves. He is Lord of the wind and waves. And he was showing his disciples that, 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 that the nature and the wind and the waves and the storms and the sea, it is all in submission to his lordship. Everything is in submission to him. There's nothing that you will ever face that he has not overcome. Verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. I love Peter. All the other disciples, the other 11, all they wanted to do was get out of the storm. Not Peter. Peter wants to get into the storm. Like, I love Peter. He's this dichotomy. He's this contradiction in one person, isn't he? Like, he's so passionate. He, like, he says the right thing, you know, in, in Matthew 16. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, and you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And two minutes later, Jesus is saying to him, get behind me, Satan. Because he said something really stupid. He says, Jesus, these other guys might all betray you, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm Rocky. And the wee girl in the courtyard, he with curses and oaths, he says, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. He spends three years walking with the Prince of Peace. And they come to arrest Jesus in the garden. And what does he do? He chops off somebody's ear. Like, like how do you even do that? Like, like, chops off an ear. What was he aiming for? Like, and yet this was the guy that, that Jesus made the head of his church. This was the guy who was the greatest... Later in the early church, if you go through all the lists of the apostles, all the lists of, 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 of the disciples, Peter's always first. I love that. you know why? Because it tells me that God can use people who are flawed. It tells me that, that sometimes I feel like I have four people in here. Do you know what I mean? I'm this person who's all on for God, and yet at times I make a complete hash of it. And, and, and I'm so passionate when I'm up here, and my passion also gets me into trouble at times. Bless you. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm not talking about in, like in sinful. I'm just talking about in stupid ways. 
Like the management team and the trustees have seen it at times. Like I'm so passionate, but that passion sometimes gets misdirected. And I have to go back a week or a day later and apologize. Because I've got passionate in a meeting. And I've said stupid stuff. I haven't done so much in a wee while. I'm... <laughs> the trustees might beg to differ. <gasps> mm. Um. But you know what? Here's the thing, and I told them this last year, actually, in a meeting. I said, I could get rid of all the passion that causes me to say stupid stuff in these meetings at times, which I haven't done in a wee while. But, but if I were to tone that down, I would have to tone this down. And I don't want to do that. And I want to say the same to you, that there's bits of your personality that you maybe don't like. There's bits of your personality that you'd like to change. And yes, we don't want to have sinful stuff in our lives. But if you were to, to tone that down too much, you'd no longer be you. And God loves you the way you are. He loves your personality. Yes, get some of the sinful rough edges off. I, I totally, I'm all on for that. Sanctify those things. But don't tone yourself down to the point where you're just like bland and beige. Be you. Be the best, passionate for God, you. But be you. God doesn't just want a voice. He wants your voice. He made you the way you are. And that's what I love about Peter. Even with his personality, God was able to use him. And he stepped out of the boat with just one word. He says, if it's you, let me come. And Jesus just gives him one word. Come, come. Just one word. Come. See, Peter had this crazy notion that if this was really Jesus, then nothing was impossible. Imagine having a notion like that. That if this is really Jesus, nothing's impossible. And he says, if it's really you, give me a word. And Jesus says, come. Then Peter, verse 29, got down from the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why? Did you doubt? I wonder what that moment was like when he got down off the boat. Like, can can you imagine? He climbs down off the side. He's holding on with both hands. And then he lets go with one hand. And all the disciples, some some of them are going, do it. And some of them are going, don't do it. And then he lets go with the other hand. What was that feeling like? Can you imagine what that was like in those moments? And it says he walked towards Jesus. He actually took steps on the water. But here's the thing. Then it says he saw the wind and the waves and began to sink. The wind and the waves have been there for eight hours. There was nothing new about the wind and the waves. You see, here's where I've come to the conclusion. That, that Peter wasn't walking on water. He was walking on the word come, that Jesus had given him. He was walking on that one word, come. And while he was standing on the word, he was fine. But once he allowed what was going on around him to become his focus, he started to sink. And when you are out there in the world, there's a lot of stuff swirling around you. And you can stand on the word of God. 
And if you stand on the word of God, you can keep walking forward. But if you start getting consumed with all the stuff going on around you, all the voices, all the pressure, all the, all the stuff that's telling you to believe this and think this, and this is, and all the stuff our culture's telling us is normal, and all the, you'll start to sink. But if you stay standing on the word of God, if you stay standing on the word of God, stay standing on the word of God. Yes, that stuff can go on around you. Stay walking in the word of God. Stay walking in the word of God. Let that stuff go on around you. Just let it swirl. It doesn't matter. Stand walking in the word of God. I'm standing on the word. You can keep going forward. Peter stood on the word, but once he took his eyes off the word and put it on the wind, he started to sink. But here's what I love. He started to sink, but he wasn't sunk. Because as soon as he started to sink, it says immediately Jesus grabbed him. Immediately Jesus grabbed him. And I'm going to finish here. See, there's a difference between sinking and being sunk. He started sinking, but he wasn't sunk. He started going under, but he didn't go under. And some of you might today feel like you're sinking. Maybe you feel like you're sinking into disappointment or depression, despair, debt, fear. Maybe you feel like you're sinking into addiction or lust or regrets or confusion or sadness or hurt. You know, sometimes you feel you're sinking, don't you? You feel like I'm just going under here. I want to say to you, you might sink, but you're not sunk. Just because you're sinking doesn't mean you're sunk. Because there's always a hand there. There's always a hand there. There's always a hand there. It says immediately, as soon as he cried out to Jesus, immediately Jesus grabbed him. And I wonder how they got back to the boat. Here's what I think happened. Because remember, the boat's over here, they're over here. I think just Jesus put his arm around him and walked back with him. I think Jesus just walked. I don't think he carried him. I just think he supported him. And I want to say to you, some of you today might feel like you're sinking, but that doesn't mean you're sunk. There will always be things in life that will knock you. You will slip, you will trip, you will fall, but you don't have to be sunk. I was reminded of a story this week of a friend of mine. I haven't thought about this story in 10 years. A story of a friend of mine called Emma. Emma and I knew each other from university days. And... She was on fire for God, and her desire was to serve God with her whole life. Her dad was a Presbyterian minister, a well-known minister, and her desire was to meet a man who wanted to serve God like she did, and, to, and, and just to, to spend her life serving God. But in her early to mid-twenties, Emma met a guy called Rob, and Rob wasn't a Christian, and she fell hard. She fell really hard for this guy. And there was this inner conflict within her because she loved this guy. Like she really fell for him. But she knew in her heart she wanted to serve God with her life and she knew that he didn't. And this went on for, and in the end, she had to get away and she actually went to Australia. I mean, if somebody gets, goes to Australia to get away from you, you know what I mean? Um, they want to get away from you. But this was the only way she thought I can, she, she knew as long as they were in the same place she would keep going back to him. So she moves to Australia. But the night before she goes, she goes to say farewell to Rob. And their passion gets the better of them. And they end up in a place where they didn't 
intend to be. She's in Australia three, four weeks, realizes she's pregnant. All alone. Can't tell anyone. What does she do? She feels like she's sinking. I remember her phoning me, telling me she was pregnant. Her dad had just been made moderator of the Presbyterian Church. So this had to be kept. So you can imagine the Sunday world, but I had a field day with it. You know, moderator's heartache. A few months go by, she still hasn't told anybody. This is just, she's sinking. She's sinking, but she's praying and she's crying out. And, and Rob is a rugby player. And they were on a tour of Australia. Three months into her time there. And so they'd already arranged before she left that he would come and see her when she was in Australia. So Rob comes and sees her and they sit down and she says, I have something to tell you. And he says, I have something to tell you. And she says, mine's more important. He says, no, mine's more important. She says, go first. And he says, I've become a Christian. She says, I'm pregnant. He said, yours was more important. Rob and Emma are now 17 years married, two lovely kids, and serving the Lord. And like I said, I'd forgotten that story until this week, and I think the whole point of it was this. Just because you're sinking doesn't mean you're sunk. Just because you're sinking, just because it feels like everything has fallen apart, it doesn't mean that Jesus can't see you. It doesn't mean he's not there, and it doesn't mean he isn't coming towards you. But it's really hard to see when you're in the storm. And I just want to speak, I want to speak comfort to you. I want to speak hope to you. That no matter where you're finding yourself or where you will find yourself, it may feel like you're completely overwhelmed. But he sees you, he knows you, he loves you. And just because you're sinking, he will not let you sink completely. Just call on him. And he reaches out. Let's pray together.